I will pick up where Craig left off. He read from 28 through 47. And this is John 8, 48 through 59. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is the father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him. And I keep his word. Your father, Abraham, rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. What kind of faith do you have? I know it's a strange question to ask people who showed up for church on a Sunday morning. A strange question from a pastor who says again and again that faith is binary. You have it or you don't. You don't need more faith or stronger faith. To be saved, you need saving faith. The only kind that God gives. In this gospel, John has a lot to say about saving faith. But he's also shown us there's another kind. A faith that is born out of miracles or nationalistic enthusiasm. A faith that is not the gift of God. Faith that does not save, that does not endure. Commentaries call it spurious faith. That means counterfeit. It's like fool's gold. It tricks the one who has it into thinking that they're right with God. All the while conditioning the heart to oppose God at every turn. In verses 28 and 29, Jesus connects his crucifixion and his ascension to the Father's purposes for the Incarnation. He came to save. Jesus came to be lifted up first in death and then in resurrection. And Jesus is speaking about his purpose from the Father passionately. He's emphasizing the close eternal connection that they share within the Trinity. And given the power of that message and the one who speaks it, verse 30 is no surprise. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. And verse 31 as well. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him. 
What Jesus will say next, everything Craig and I read this morning, he says to the many who believed in him. And what he will say to them is a test of faith. What kind of faith do they have? And for them, the answer is not good. These Jews who had believed in verse 30 are the same people, Jesus says in verse 34, are slaves to sin. And verse 37 won't receive his words. In verse 40, they're the ones seeking to kill him. And in verse 44, they're children of the devil. These Jews believed some of what they understood Jesus to be saying. But they did not believe what Jesus actually said. And they did not believe in his authority to say it. The difference between saving and spurious faith is the difference between life and death. And here Jesus shows us how to tell one from the other. There are many who still believe that a mere public profession or a private prayer is a guarantee of eternal life, regardless of what follows from it. In some churches, they treat baptism this way, or others, church membership. And those can all be good, important parts of the Christian life. But they cannot save. What kind of faith do you have? There's only one kind that saves. Jesus shows us the test by which we can tell. It's verse 31. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Another pastor writes, a genuine believer remains in Jesus' teaching. She obeys it, seeks to understand it better, And finds it more precious, more controlling, precisely when others oppose it most. The tone of the conversation changes quickly when Jesus challenges the faith of his hearers. One moment they believe, at least parts of what Jesus is saying, that's verse 28. And the next moment they argue with him and then insult him and finally attempt to kill him. How could things change so quickly? We know how. We've all experienced the condition of heart right here that allows for such rapid change. When someone challenges something you've done or a decision that you've made, don't you feel it start to well up within you? It doesn't matter how much they love you or how supportive they are of you generally. They're opposing you now. They're against you. And there crouches sin at the door. Growing by grace, we learn more often to suppress those feelings, to have teachable and correctable hearts. This What have you done for me lately? Approach to relationships is nothing new. When they like what Jesus has to say, they believe him. And when they don't like what he has to say, they're ready to stone him. He gets no credit for knowing their hearts, no credit for having been right before, no credit for his miraculous power or for teaching with supernatural authority. And he gets no credit because they don't 
hear his word as something that helpfully corrects their own way of living. They hear his word only for the parts that affirm their way of living or that can be used as a weapon against others. That's how spurious faith listens to the word of God when it listens at all. Genuine faith listens with self-reflection. What is God's word saying for me? The listener with genuine faith abides with the word of Christ even when it requires me to change or accuses me of sin. That's too much for these Jews who believe. They'll affirm some of what they imagine Jesus to be saying so long as they retain ultimate authority, so long as they get to be the judge of his words. They decide what's acceptable and what's not. But Jesus did not come to be anyone's yes man. He came to call people to surrender themselves to him as their deliverer from bondage to Satan and sin. Abiding in his word, another man concludes, means making it the rule of life. And that's what they will not abide. And so they will not abide in him. The point of conflict is about what Jesus is offering. He's offering freedom. The truth will set you free. And they don't want it because they don't think they need it. They think they are free. They look at their lives and morally and spiritually, they're doing what they want to do. Isn't that freedom? Verse 33, how is it that you say you will become free? They don't believe they need the freedom Jesus offers. In fact, they're highly offended that he offers it. Spurious faith convinces us that we have everything under control, that we can handle it all in our own wisdom and our own strength. It convinces us that we're free. They believe that since they're living on their own terms, that is freedom. But a thoughtful teacher disagrees. He says one is free not when he can do what he wishes to do, But when he wishes to do and can do what he should do, that's the freedom Jesus offers. In verse 36, the freedom to abide in his word. It's the freedom to want to do, the freedom to be able to do, the freedom to actually do that which pleases God. That's freedom. And that's why Jesus says these Jews are not free. To be free, to abide with him in freedom, we must first acknowledge that we are slaves. And you see in verses 31 to 33 that they won't give an inch. They appeal to Abraham, to the promises that God made to him. And they say, by those promises, we are free. What is the covenant of grace sealed in the exodus, sealed in the inheritance of the promised land, if not the assurance and provision of our freedom? 
Several commentaries connect this passage to the one in Mark 2 where Jesus' opponents didn't think they needed a spiritual physician because they didn't think they were spiritually sick. In the same way here, they don't need spiritual freedom because they don't see their own spiritual chains. Verse 33 in Greek is really nasty in tone. These men who only a few moments ago were described as believing in Jesus now find him morally repugnant. And it proves the kind of faith they have. Jesus said, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And only two verses later, it's clear that they will not abide in this word. Their faith is spurious. It's counterfeit. By nature, each one of us is a slave to sin. When we sin, Jesus says in verse 34, we tighten the bonds of that slavery. We both inherit and embrace the status of spiritual rebel from our first parents. And this rebellion isn't freedom. It's slavery to sin. The world thinks rebellion is freedom. And Christ says it is slavery. These Jews like the idea of Jesus coming to free them from a political oppressor like Rome. But the claim that what he really came to do is to free them from slavery to sin, it's an insult. And they won't abide. Kids, think about in one of those movies we see that has a prisoner chained to the walls of a dungeon. And this is what sin does. It wraps us so tightly that we could never free ourselves. It is not possible. Houdini is not getting out of this one. And that's us born into slavery because Adam, our spiritual representative and head, rebelled against God. He refused to abide in the word of God. But we're no mere victims. We also choose to sin. Sometimes we love sin and we go running to it. Sometimes we're ashamed of sin and we try to cover it up and hide it. But in every case, we choose to sin. And with each sin, Jesus says that those chains pull tighter and tighter around us. Sin's hold grows ever more powerful over us. That is our condition. That's the slavery that these Jews refuse to acknowledge. And the glory of the gospel is that in verses 35 and 36, Jesus announces that the Father has given him the authority and the task to come down from heaven to free people from those chains. Spurious faith cannot save us. Because it denies that we were ever in chains to begin with. It says, I don't need your freedom. I'm free just how I am. The faith of these men rests not through abiding with the word of Jesus Christ. It rests through a a distant family relationship with Abraham. 
We have Abraham as our father, they say. And that's really, in this case, just as irrelevant as someone today saying, I believe in God, or I'm a good person, or even I was baptized. Jesus exposes their faith as spurious rather than true. It starts in verse 37. Though they've said they believe Jesus, they don't abide in his word. They'll accept his word when it supports their own agenda and preferences, but when his words clash with their way of living, they will abandon it and turn on him in rage. This means that it's not just that their faith in Jesus that is spurious, but as he points out here, so also is their faith in Abraham. Because they don't even walk in Abraham's works. Abraham listened to God and believed his promises, despite what he saw. These men do whatever Satan whispers to them. Abraham welcomed God's messengers and received him with gladness. They want to stone Jesus. Abraham obeyed God even when it came at great cost. And they'll surrender the lordship of their life to no one. Abraham saved by faith because he lived by faith is not their father. It's as Jesus said in verse 38, just as the things that Jesus says and does reveal who his father is, that his father is God, so the things these Jews say and do reveal who their father is. But notice, at least as of verse 31, Jesus doesn't yet come right out and say who their father is. He leaves it ambiguous. And the Jews notice that ambiguity. They pick up on it and they are highly offended by this omission because it suggests or it could suggest that Jesus is calling them spiritual bastards. I know you're not supposed to use that word from the pulpit. But that word is considered bad because of precisely what that word means. It implies a person with an unknown father. And that's why these Jews are so angry. They think that Jesus says Abraham is not their father. And he's implying that they don't have a known father. And so they go on the attack. Their response in the second part of verse 41 is vitriolic. They say to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Do you see what they're saying there? They're saying, Jesus, you of all people should want to keep your mouth shut about paternity. Aren't you the one who was conceived before your parents were married? virgin birth. (laughs) And if Jesus wants to bicker with them about Abraham as their father, they'll just go straight to the top. God is our father. It's as Paul wrote in Romans 9, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. Don't you see, Jesus? We are Israelites. God is our Father. Read your Old Testament. Of course, Jesus knows his Old Testament quite well. He is the Old Testament and the new in human flesh. 
He's not rejecting God's promises to his people. He's not doubting God's goodness. He's challenging whether these people belong to God. Those who are of his father abide in his word. Spurious faith, people who reject his word, reveal that they come from another father. Verse 33, why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. It's the opposite of abiding in his word, refusing to hear it. I can't bear to hear it. How we receive Jesus' word reveals whether or not we've been born again of the Father's grace. The murderous desires and the rejection of truth on display by these men reveals that what they believe is not of Abraham or of God, but it is of another spiritual father, one who showed his commitments to murderous desires and lies back in the Garden of Eden. And in verse 44, Jesus just comes out with it. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. The rest of this passage is a contrast between this father and the desires and authority of those he controls and Christ, whose desires and authority both come from his heavenly father. The fruit of faith reveals the source of faith. The fruit of faith reveals the source of faith. Human goodness, that fruit of the Spirit, which is goodness, comes as a result of the goodness of God in us. One proves the other. And the lack of one proves the other. Translating verse 45 correctly is really important. The ESV does this well because Jesus does not say, although I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Jesus says, because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. A Greek scholar explains that the children of the devil will be so characterized by lies that they are not able to accept truth precisely because it is truth. They're trying to argue theology with Jesus and they will not listen to what he says. Jesus knows that all truth is in him. And Jesus is concerned with what his father thinks, not with what these people think. So he puts a challenge to them in 46 and 47. He asks them to consider the case they could make to convict him of sin before the father. Put your case together and go make it to the God you claim is your father that accuses and convicts me of sin. Go, let's hear that case. I'll wait. Put it together. And there isn't one. It's a great lesson from that for us. When the person we're accusing turns out to be blameless, it should be time for some serious self-reflection. Of course, instead of that, these opponents turn to personal insult. The worst thing they can think to say, you're a Samaritan and a demon-possessed one at that. And they accuse him of glorifying himself, of being self-aggrandizing. But that's not what Jesus is doing. He's defending his father's honor. 
His father is the one who gave him the words of eternal life. His father is the one who made him Lord over all. His father is the one who glorifies him in all things. Jesus is obedient to the father. The glory that Jesus seeks and receives is not from himself, and it's not from men like this or any men. It is only from the father. These men call themselves sons of Abraham, but they prove themselves to be sons of the devil. Abraham rejoiced in the Lord's promises. It says in the book of Hebrews, by faith, he greeted them from afar. He trusted God's goodness even for things he was yet to see. Way less information about the fulfillment of God's promises than these men had or than that we have. And yet he believed God and trusted his goodness. Jesus is the fulfillment of everything Abraham believed God for. And so comparing these men to Abraham, one pastor observes that Abraham was of an entirely different spirit. He would have been unspeakably displeased with these men. He yearned for Jesus' day. He looked forward to it with eager anticipation, veiled from his sight as it was. And these men can't bear to hear what Jesus says. Verse 57. They can't take it. Thousands of years between Abraham and Jesus in history. And so their spiritual blindness cannot abide this nonsense. There's no way to bridge that historical gap. What has Jesus to do with Abraham? Is he claiming that he was there? Is he claiming to have seen him? How can Jesus claim to know better than these religious rulers how Abraham reacted to God's promises? Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Commissioned to go to the people of Israel and lead them out of bondage in Egypt, Moses asked God, when they ask of me, what is the name of this God? What shall I say to them? And God said, I am that I am. My life, Jesus says, is not measured in years like Abraham. I am the I am. This is the last straw for these Jews who until so recently believed. They go to find stones in the temple court with which to murder Jesus. He told them they had murderous thoughts and they denied it. And now they're picking up stones. He who knows hearts. And given what he just said, it's one of two options. Because either he is God himself or he's a blasphemer deserving of death. And they've made up their minds, which they believe. And that makes the nature of their faith crystal clear. How Jesus slips away, we're not told, but it's no surprise. His time has not yet come. Don't you feel it getting closer? As he said, they will see the Son of Man lifted up. On the cross and in the resurrection and ascension, the glory of Christ, glory that he shared before all time with the Father, will be revealed. 
And on the day of his return, that glory will be revealed to all. Jesus warns in 28 and 29, everyone eventually learns that his words are true. For many, it's too late. Those who will rejoice in the day of his coming, he says plainly, are those who abide in his word before that day comes. That's the test. His words are truth. He is truth. To abide in his word is to abide in him. By the test that Jesus set forth this morning, what kind of faith do you have? Do you acknowledge that apart from him, you're not free? You're a slave to sin. And do you live abiding in his word as one whom has been set free from sin? Not just giving up on sanctification. Not just that's how I am. My mother was that way. I learned this from my father. Do you live as one who has been set free by Christ? Remember, as another pastor put it, true freedom is not the liberty to do whatever you please. It's the liberty to do what you ought. And it's true liberty because doing what we ought is now what we want to do. The most glorious part of the experience of salvation is that God changes our wants. He aligns our desires with his, which are the Father's and his and the Spirit's glory. And we want to live a life through which we glorify God and enjoy him forever. Spurious faith stands over God's word as judge. It's always evaluating God's word deciding case by case what it finds acceptable and what it will obey. The man of genuine faith lays down his life in order to take up Christ's. Spurious faith listens to God's word to be affirmed. It listens to God's word to gather weapons with which to judge and correct others. Genuine faith listens to God's word and says, how should I be changed? Make no mistake. There are times when we need to be encouraged in our faith and assured of our righteous standing in Christ. The evil one loves to accuse us, causing us to doubt God's goodness and his love for us. And God is gracious to fill scripture with promises of our perseverance in faith. Scripture also has passages like this one, which should call even lifelong believers to moments of serious reflection. What kind of faith do I have? Not what do I think I have or wish I have. What faith do I have? By one test, am I abiding in the word of Christ? By his grace and by the presence of his spirit at work in us, we can abide in Christ. And believers, by his grace and by the presence of his spirit working in us, we will abide in Christ. 
to the glory of Christ. Amen.